Okay, and today's uh, scripture reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1 to 13. All right, warnings from Israel's history. For I do not wish, whoops, sorry, for I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 20,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us, on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. May God bless the reading of his word. Good morning, church, and uh, it's good to be with you again. My, my name's Jono, if you're uh, not familiar with me, um, and welcome to those online as well. We uh, continue today in 1 Corinthians, though uh, I say continue, but we're actually going back from last week. Uh, ben preached from the end of chapter 10, we're doing the beginning this week. Uh, I'm sure many of you growing up, and maybe even still, knew of or heard uh, the cautionary tales, uh, the boy who cried wolf, little red riding hood, the three little pigs, the tortoise and the hare, uh, all of them designed to teach, uh, particularly children, a lesson. Now, they have been changed a little, uh, so for example, in the original little red riding hood, uh, the wolf comes and it eats the grandmother and Red Riding Hood and then that's the end of the story. There's no huntsman that comes and rescues them because the purpose of that story was to freak the kid out so much that if anyone came and talked to them on the road, they would just ignore them and keep on going, right? It's, I mean, now the, the huntsman comes and he rescues them and so, in a sense, the, the effect is somewhat dulled uh, don't worry, you know, someone's going to rescue you. But the, the, the purpose was to put fear into them so that they would not talk to strangers and uh, presumably not approach houses made of gingerbread and, and so forth, right? I mean, that was, that was the idea of these stories. It was to help them, to scare them in the moments when they felt tempted to do the wrong thing to make the right decisions, I know it will be fun to get the whole town running around thinking that there's a wolf, but if you keep lying to them, there are consequences. 
if you become untrustworthy, if you're seen as untrustworthy. Now, what we have in front of us today is actually a cautionary tale, except it's not just a story that someone made up, it's actually Paul recounting events from the history of Israel, but he is using them to caution us, to warn us. Twice he says, these things happened, they were written down as warnings for us. They're supposed to scare us. That's what they're doing here. They're supposed to scare us into making better decisions, to avoid foolish and disastrous choices. Now, that might be strange to our ears because in our culture, what we're used to, what we're used to thinking is that you motivate someone by positive things, by love and so on. But that's not what Paul is doing here. And so we need to consider this warning, this cautionary tale, as it were, uh, to see what he is warning us against. Uh, this happens within the context of, as we've been seeing, uh, Paul's discussion around the question, should you eat um, food sacrificed to idols? Now, uh, chapter 8, chapter 9, the second half of chapter 10, Paul answers that question in terms of how might my actions uh, affect someone else? Uh, that's how he sort of answers that. In this passage, he doesn't do that. He's thinking about your personal relationship with God. And in fact, there is a contrast being drawn here. It, in, he's going to talk about all the things that happened to Israel, all the things that they all shared in, but then he's going to about, talk about some, all and some, all and some. We read about the all in verses 1 to 4. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptised into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Now, in verses 1 and 2, Paul is referring to the great salvation event of, uh, of Exodus, of the Old Testament. That is, when the people were brought out of Egypt, out of slavery, uh, by God. Now, he's speaking about the end of that. He's speaking about the, the, the passing through the Red Sea and the Egyptian army being destroyed behind them. But he's really expecting that we would uh, think of the whole event. And he says, somewhat strangely to our ears, that he says that that was like them being baptised into Moses. Well, well, we'll come back to that. He then talks about the food and drink that they ate in the desert. Now, if you recall, after they were rescued from the Egyptians, they wandered in the desert, they wandered to Mount Sinai, and then beyond that, they wandered for longer as well. And in that desert, God provided them food, provided them manna. And at times, not all the time, but at times when they had no water, He provided them water as well from the rock. Now, Paul describes that here as spiritual food and spiritual drink. I think that, in a sense, it, I mean, it was 
actual food and drink, but of course, the fact that God was providing it for them, and He says that Christ was providing it for them, uh, means that it, there was an, a spiritual effect, if you like, because God is providing for me, that has an effect on us. But I think the other reason He does that is because He's actually, in somewhat, perhaps to us, vague language, He's actually making a reference to the Lord's Supper. And so, why does He do that? Why does He talk about being baptised into Moses? Why does He make, kind of, try and make this food and drink of the Old Testament into the Lord's Supper? I, I don't think He's so much seeking to teach us a, a really deep lesson about baptism and the Lord's Supper. He, he's trying to help the Corinthians, in a sense, uh, connect with the spiritual experience of the Old Testament people. You see, because the, the Corinthians had also experienced a salvation event, the washing of rebirth through the Spirit, the symbol for which is baptism. They'd experienced, they'd experienced this beginning, if you like, of the spiritual journey, when they came to Christ, when they were, became aware of Christ and they were rescued by Christ and they were baptised into Christ. They'd been rescued by Him, you see. And they had also, and were also, being sustained spiritually as they ate the spiritual food and drink of the Lord's Supper. I, and, and so, what Paul is saying, the point of comparison here is, look, those people, they were sustained spiritually, they, were, they had spiritual experiences and they're similar to their spiritual experiences uh, that you've had. They all experience this and you all in the Corinthian church have experienced these things, you've experienced the spiritual blessings and feeding of God through baptism in the Holy Spirit. But, verse 5, nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. They all experienced the spiritual blessing, but most of them never made it to the promised land. They wandered through the wilderness, they were sustained by God, but most of them never made it. This is the cautionary tale, you see. <laughs> just like the Israelites, just because you've experienced God's salvation act, if, if you like, you, or at least you know about it and you've heard about it and you've seen people baptised, maybe even been baptised yourself, just because you have fed at the table, you've eaten the bread and the juice and you've, you've consumed that and you've remembered the death of Christ, just because you come to church, just because you hear the gospel message, just because all of those things have happened to you, it does not make you immune to idolatry. Those things do not inoculate you from the, the temptations of idolatry. Now, we'll look at how the Israelites fell into this, but let's just stop and, and note this, that this is the warning, this is the cautionary tale. Spiritual experiences don't make you immune to idolatry and to sin and wandering away from God. I mean, think about what he, the, the comparison he's making. You're an Israelite, you, you go through the ten plagues in Egypt, you walk out of Egypt following Moses, there's a clear pillar of cloud during the day, there's a pillar of fire at night, the, 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 God protects you from the Egyptians and you, you, you walk through the Red Sea, there's walls of water on you and if the children's Bibles are to believe, there's a whale right there. 
and you get through and then you come to Mount Sinai and there's fire and lightning and, and a voice from God and then you fall into idolatry. Now, if that can happen to them, how much more can it happen to us? Though we have the, the full story of the gospel, the true and better rescue from, from slavery to sin, and we're heading to all the true and better promised land that is heaven with God, how much more, if it's possible for them, how much more is it possible for us, you see, to fall into idolatry, into sin, and to be left along the way in the wilderness? God will not be fooled with these spiritual things that we enjoy as good as they are here in the church, singing the praises of God and hearing the gospel message and enjoying the Lord's Supper and seeing people baptised and all the rest of it. They're, they're wonderful things, but they don't inoculate you from idolatry. Be warned. Verse 6, now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. The Old Testament people are an example to us. Now, it's worth, I think, just noting that the Old Testament people aren't always, like anyone in the Old Testament isn't automatically an, an example to us. So, uh, David slays Goliath with a rock. That does not mean that God will dis slay all the the giants in your life that you are up against. I mean, that's not how we read the Bible. And yet, and in fact, in that story, who are we supposed to identify with? We're supposed to identify with the losers who won't go out and fight Goliath because we're so scared and we need a saviour to come and rescue us. And, and this, the, the people of Israel have the same human condition that we do. We have a desire to be in control, we have a desire to be our own God, we have a desire to pursue our own desires and, and that core temptation, that, that human condition is, is the same for us as it is for them. And so we can look back at them and we can learn from their actions. And Paul gives us three examples here of the times that they fell into idolatry. The first is... Uh, is actually a reference there in verse 7. The first is a, is a reference to uh, the time at Mount Sinai when the, the people of Israel made the golden calf. Uh, as I say, they came out uh, through the Red Sea, they were rescued by God, He brings them to Mount Sinai, uh, He comes down on the mountain, it's such an impressive display of power, a fearful display of power, uh, He speaks to them in the Ten Commandments and at the end of that they say, no more uh, Moses, we can't hear it anymore. Why, what? You go up, you speak with God. He's too scary for us. And then you come back and you tell us what he has to say. We'll just stay down here. Well, he does that and, uh, and he's up there for a long time, 40 days. And so after a while, they get impatient and they say to Aaron, well, you, you make us a God. And he makes the golden calf from their jewellery and then... He says to them, these are your gods who brought you out of Egypt. So, in a sense, they're still acknowledging God, it's just that they're doing it with the idol. Now, why? I mean, it seems a strange thing to do. I mean, the mountain's still right there. Well, Paul gives us a hint in, in the bit of that story that he quotes. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and got up to indulge in in revelry 
in other words, it seems like what Paul is saying is, it wasn't really the idol that was the attraction. They wanted to have a party. They wanted to eat and drink and indulge in revelry. And there's an implication of sexual immorality there, but it's not clear. But that's what they wanted to do. They were, they were sick of waiting. They really wanted to have a grand old hoedown, maybe like the gods uh, they'd had back in Egypt. I mean, they really knew how to party with their gods, those Egyptians. Let's, let's, let's do some of that. We're sick of waiting for this thing on the mountain. Now, it's a similar problem in the next example of idolatry. In verse 8, uh, we read, Paul says, we should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. Now, when, that's a reference to Numbers 25, and when you go there, this is what you read. While Israel, Israel was staying at Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with, the, with Moabite women, who invited them to the sacrifices of their God, gods. The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. Now, I ask you, when you read that, what is the real attraction there? Is it the idol or maybe something else? It's not the idol. I mean, it's, it's the sex. That's why they're doing it. That's why they go and worship the gods, because, well, if you come and worship our gods, you, you know, we'll, we'll have sex. Oh, that sounds pretty good. Let's go and do that. And I point that out because it would be very easy for us in, in, you know, 21st century, who are very scientific and very, you know, very clever and very progressive and so on and so forth, to, to look and go, well, that's a very interesting warning. Don't fall into idolatry, John. I, I mean, that's very good. I'm glad that Paul was warning the Corinthians. They were obviously very backward people as well. But we don't worship idols, I mean, I've seen a Buddha in someone's house. I just went, oh, that's very nice. Good for you to have Buddha. But I wasn't interested in worshipping the idol. Well, no, if, no, you probably weren't. But what if the idol worship came with all kind of other things that you did want? <laughs> Parties and sex or just social or whatever. You see, we need to realise what the tem real temptations are here so that we don't overlook this warning. And perhaps the final example that Paul gives is closest to home for us. In verse 9, he says, we should not test Christ, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. Now, what's interesting is if when you go back to Numbers 21 and read what happens, that, and this is what Paul is referring to, there's no mention of idols. This is what it says. The people grew impatient on the way, because they're still wandering around in the wilderness. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Manor had got a bit old, apparently. They weren't, weren't interested anymore. That, why why does Paul stick that account? He could have picked other ones. There's lots of... It's not that he was short of examples of idolatry in, the, in ancient Israel. Why does he pick this? Well, because if you think about it, grumbling, complaining, which is what they're doing here, against God is a form of idolatry. Because what are they really saying? The gods back in Egypt were doing a better job than you. 
we could do a better job than you. We would do better if we were in charge, thank you very much, Moses and God. And that is idolatry. It's idolatry of either the gods back in Egypt or idolatry of self. That's what grumbling is. I don't think you're doing a very good job. And notice this. God doesn't just go, oh, well, grumbling, you know, people grumble from time to time. That's kind of how we view grumbling. We, you know, we, I know you, no, one, no one ranks sins, of course, because we know that you're not supposed to rank sins, but if someone was ranking sins, uh, you know, sexual sins, well, they're, like, they're really bad, but grumbling, uh, I mean, everyone has a grumble from now on. It's an Australian pastime, for goodness sake. What does God do? To these grumblers. He sent snakes, I assume thousands of them, into the camp. They bit people, they were poisoned and they died. That's what he did. That's how seriously God takes grumbling and idolatry. Now, now look, it's important to note, we're not talking about lament. So the Psalms are full of lament. The Psalms are full of, uh, God, uh, I don't understand why my life is like this. Please rescue me. Uh, please turn back to me. You seem far from me. Please uh, reveal yourself to me again. There, there are cry, people crying out to God for help and for rescue and, and in, in uncertainty. That, that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about here is I could do a better job if I was in charge. Which is almost assumed in our culture, isn't it? I mean, especially when it comes to politicians. But of course, that spills over to God as well. If I was in charge, really everything would be far, far better than it is now. Perhaps that's why grumbling gets two mentions, obliquely in verse 9 and then in verse 10 as well, though we're not sure uh, what situation a destroying angel came. And it may be that Paul's just using that as a general kind of, this is what happened in the Old Testament. But it's concerning, isn't it, that if idolatry, grumbling is included in idolatry, how easily we might fall into that. And so, verse 11, again, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us. Warnings for us, he says, on whom the culmination of ages has come, that is, uh, everything in the Old Testament was leading up to Christ. Now Christ has come. He has died for our sins. He's poured out His Spirit. We're looking forward to the ultimate promised land, uh, that is the new heavens and the earth. And, and all that happened prior to Christ is an example. It teaches us about how to live for Christ now. And so he goes on and he says in verse 12, So if you think you are standing firm, be careful. Be careful that you, do, you don't fall. If you think you are standing firm, if you think you've got it all together, if you think that everything is fine, be careful. If idolatry that, that can displease God comes in the form of even just grumbling and complaining and thinking we could do a better job, if it, if it comes in the form of pursuing our pleasures and desires, first of all, so that God is pushed to the side, if that's all it takes to be an idolater, and God is angry at that, displeased at that, and people died in the wilderness because of that, then we need to take care. Verse 13, 
no matter whether you've experienced the blessing of being part of a church or part of a Christian family or the Lord's Supper or baptism or whatever, be warned. Take this seriously. The consequences are devastating. Now you might say, hang on a minute, hang on a minute. Don't we believe and doesn't the Bible say that nothing can take us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Or Philippians chapter 1, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. Or Jesus, as we sang uh, in the third song, uh, who, who keeps his sheep. Don't, isn't that what we believe? Absolutely that's what we believe. But how does God keep us? Well, he keeps us through what, the, what has been called in theology means, but that's a f- bit of a funny word. It, it, just the ordinary things that we do, Bible reading and prayer and coming to church and the Lord's Supper and, and warnings. How does God keep us? How does he sustain us? By warning us. That's one of the ways that he keeps us. And it's worth kind of making a distinction here between willful sins and sins of ignorance. We all commit every day, sadly, sins of ignorance. That is, I don't love God with all my heart and all my soul and all my mind and all my strength as I should. And I don't know all the ways that I don't do that, not yet. And every day or every week, God reveals that slowly to me and and hopefully I turn to Christ in repentance and faith and say, please forgive me, remake me, keep working on me God that, that's sins of ignorance and, and God's quite clear through his word that he does not uh, he, he's, th- that, that's not what we're talking about here what we're talking about is willful sins that is sins where we know something is wrong we know we should not do it God's told us not to do it he's revealed it to us he's perhaps warned us about it in various ways and yet we continue to do it We rebel against him. The Israelites, in all of these situations, knew that they should not be doing what they were doing. They knew, in fact, in some of these, they've been warned. How many times throughout that wilderness wandering do they grumble and God shows them grace and and calls them back to himself and yet then finally he, he acts. They persisted and Paul is warning against persistent and willful sin and idolatry. And if you think it can never happen to you, Paul is saying, be warned. Be warned. And again, you might say, well, hang on a minute. As I said at the beginning, aren't we supposed to be motivated by love and not fear? I mean, fear is so negative and, I mean, love is just much nicer. Well, yes, that's true. We, God does want us to be motivated by his love for us, by his, his wonder and his power and his strength and how, how glorious he is. He wants us to be delighted in that and so live for him. Yes, of course. Friends, there are times when we need fear. There are times when a child needs fear. If you walk down that road, you are going to get hit by a car, not just have your feet run over and be okay. Right? There are times when our eyes 
fix on the world and we are drawn to it. Like I said earlier, oh, wouldn't it be so much fun to see the village running around looking for a wolf? <laughs> Just so funny. We want to do it. There are things that we, we get captured by. And what will hold us back in that moment? Well, sometimes the only thing is the fear of falling by the wayside in the desert. The fear of damnation that will come our way if we persist in sinning against God. And so he gives us that warning. And I want to say this morning uh, to the young people who have grown up in the church and been baptised in the church and heard the gospel and perhaps even participated in the Lord's Supper, don't mess around with God. Don't think that you can just come on a Sunday and do the stuff and then go and do whatever you want during the week. You might say, why are you picking on the young people? Well, because the ones who did that and who have grown up aren't here anymore. I can't talk to them. They're not here to hear it because they've fallen by the wayside. Don't mess around with God. Don't pursue idols. Flee as Paul says in the very next verse from our passage, idolatry. Be warned. But there is good news. There's warning, but, there, but thankfully, by the grace of God, we are not on our own in, in facing this. And so he says in verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. God is not against us. He's not trying to undo us. He's not seeing who can trap us. If He can trap us and push us over the edge. These temptations are common to all people in all generations. They were there for the Israelites. They might have had a slightly different flavour, but they were there. They're there for the Corinthians. They're there for us. He's not against us. More than that, he, he prevents the worst of the temptations coming to us. Indeed, it's individualised. He knows precisely what you, you personally, in your situation right now, what you can withstand. And He will not tempt you beyond that. And when it comes, He will give you a way out. The way out might come in all sorts of ways. It might be a distraction in the moment. It might be a sermon delivered at just the right time. A word from a friend, a verse or a devotion. Sometimes the, 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 the warning and the way out comes from a, a non-believer that God has put in your path at just the right time to turn you away and back to Him. God wants us to delight in Him, to love Him, to see Him as the only one who is worthy, to, to, to love Him with all our strength and so on. And He gives us the spiritual blessings of the Lord's Supper and baptism and the preached Word and prayer and music and all the wonderful things that we have to, to push us toward Him and encourage us to delight in Him. He gives us this bread and, the ju and juice to remind us 
time after time, our, our forgetful human brains that, that forget the magnitude of his sacrifice to us, he, in his kindness, he gives us a remembrance feast to remember and believe and the Spirit uses that to, to work in us and point us back to him. He's so kind. And, and he's kind even when we fall into idolatry. You know what happened when, they, when the Israelites grumbled, uh, as we read earlier, and God sent the snakes and many of them were dying. What the Israelites, as you might expect, they cry out to God and they say, please save us. And if you know the story, what, what happens is, he t- God tells Moses to make a bronze snake and to put it on a pole, and to put it up in the middle of the camp, and then anyone who was bitten could look at the snake and, and be saved. Now, what's interesting, if you think about that, is that God didn't just take the snakes away. There are consequences for rebelling against God. But he did give them a way of being saved. Now, when Jesus comes, he says this of himself, just as Moses was lifted up, sorry, Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God did not, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. See, friends, even when we've fallen into idolatry and we're suffering the consequences of it, God sends His Son that we might look up to Him and cry out for mercy and find it. For Christ didn't come into the world to condemn us, to to ruin us. He came that even when we have fallen into idolatry and grumbled against God and, and sinned against Him, that we might look up to Him and find again salvation. For He longs to give us eternal life. He sent His Son into the world that we might have eternal life. Flee from idolatry. Look to our great Saviour, Jesus Christ, who was lifted up, that we might have eternal life. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this warning. It's uncomfortable for us, Lord, that uh, we see in ourselves how easy it is for us to fall into idolatry and and sin despite all the magnificent blessings we have in Christ Jesus. So easily are our eyes taken up by the good things of this world, so easily do we think that we could do things better. We thank you that you do not let us be tempted beyond what we can stand. We thank you that you provide a way out. And we ask, Father, that you would work in our hearts that we would take that way out. That we would take your warning seriously. 
we would flee idolatry and run to Christ. And we pray and we thank you that right now we get to celebrate together the Lord's Supper, remember and believe all that Christ has done. And we ask that you would impress on our hearts, drive into our hearts the glory of Christ and His sacrifice for us that we might live for Him day by day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.